This is The Churches of the World, Chapter 2, Episode 9, The Mountains of Ararat and Flood Stories from Around the World. Last week, I discussed the biblical flood story as found in the book of Genesis. This week, I'm expanding on the flood story with a look into the mountains of Ararat and other flood stories from around the globe. So I'll start with Ararat. The phrase, mountains of Ararat, of Genesis chapter 8, verse 4, is thought to refer to a general region, not a specific mountain. In keeping with that, some researchers believe that the biblical Ararat is a variation of Urarat, an ancient term for the region north of Assyria on the Armenian Plateau. In fact, there was a kingdom of Urarat, which existed between the 10th and 6th centuries BC in the same location. The book of Jubilees, in chapter 7, verse 1, specifies that the ark came to rest on one of the peaks of the mountains of Ararat called Luber. The book of Jubilees is considered canonical by the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. But the Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and all Protestant churches consider it to be Pseudopographica. Pseudopographica means it's a book where the authorship is falsely attributed and therefore it cannot be relied upon. There's another one of those words I probably won't use again. By the way, no one knows where Mount Lubar is located. The mountains of Ararat in Genesis became identified in later Christian tradition with the peak now known as Mount Ararat, a volcanic ridge on the border between Turkey and Armenia. The mountain itself is known as Ararat in European languages. However, none of the people native to the region have traditionally referred to the mountain by that name. According to Josephus, a 1st century AD Jewish-Roman historian, the Armenians in his time possessed the remains of Noah's Ark at a location called the Place of Descent, about 60 miles southeast of the summit of Mount Ararat. In the Armenian tradition in Western Christianity, based on Jerome, a 4th century Catholic historian, and his reading of Josephus, the biblical resting place of the Ark became associated with Mount Ararat, the highest peak of the Armenian highland, located in present-day Turkey. The countries of Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Iran are all within a stone's throw. During the Middle Ages, probably around the 11th century AD, this tradition surpassed the earlier association with Mount Judy. The Mount Judy tradition, sometimes called Mount Judai, is now mostly confined to the Islamic view of Noah. I'll get to that location in a minute. Traditionally, Mount Ararat has been one of the major locations for the searches for Noah's Ark. Despite numerous reports of Ark sightings, to date, no verifiable evidence of the Ark has been found. On Mount Ararat stood the St. Hakob of Akarai Monastery. St. Hakob, spelled H-A-K-O-B, is sometimes referred to as St. James. This was an Armenian monastery located on a northeastern slope of the mountain. The monastery was founded in 341 AD by Jacob of Nisibis. The monastery is alleged to have contained relics of wood from the Ark. According to a local legend, St. Jacob tried many times to climb Mount Ararat to find the Ark which he thought was buried under layers of ice at the top of the mountain. In this quest, he would climb the mountain, fall asleep, and wake up downhill from where he laid down. After repeated attempts, one day God said to him in a dream, quoting, Do not try to find the ark anymore. I will give you a piece of wood from which the ark was hewn. When he woke up, to his amazement, he found the wood lying nearby. He decided to build the monastery at the location where he found the wood. 
St. James shouldn't feel too bad, as the first attempts to scale Mount Ararat were always unsuccessful. It was not until 1829, when Frederick Parrott and Cachorator Abian, accompanied with four others, made the first recorded successful ascent. This alone should attest to the height of the peak. Mount Ararat is currently capped in ice, but the amount of ice is constantly shrinking. As far as geography goes, the mountain is about 28 miles or 45 kilometers long on its long axis, and is about 19 miles or 30 kilometers along its short axis. It has been long known that Mount Ararat is a sporadically active volcano. Archaeological evidence shows that an eruption buried at least one Koror Arax settlement, causing numerous fatalities around 2500 BC. Oral histories point to a significant eruption in 550 BC, and other minor eruptions of uncertain strength might have occurred in AD 1450 and 1783. In addition, strong earthquakes not associated with volcanic eruptions occurred in the area of Mount Ararat in 139, 368, 851, and 1319 AD. During the 139 AD earthquake, there was a large landslide that caused many deaths. In 1840, there was a magnitude 7.4 earthquake that caused severe damage and numerous fatalities. Up to 10,000 people in the Mount Ararat region died in the earthquake, including 1,900 inhabitants of the village of Ackroy, who were killed by a gigantic landslide and subsequent debris flow. In addition, this combination of landslide and debris flow destroyed the town of Ehrlich, several villages, and a Russian military barrack. It also temporarily downed the Sevor River. It was this earthquake and landslide that destroyed St. Jacob's Monastery essentially 1,500 years after its construction. There have also been those in the West who argued that the Ark ended up far away from Ararat. English explorer Sir Walter Raleigh, in his book titled The History of the World, written in 1616, argued that the mountains of Ararat were anciently understood not only as those of Armenia, but all of the taller mountain ranges extending into Asia far to the east, and that Noah's Ark must have landed somewhere in Asia, east of Ararat. Muslims do not believe that the Ark came to rest on Mount Ararat. According to Islamic tradition, Mount Judy was the location where the Ark came to rest after the Great Flood, but no one knows exactly where this mountain is located. The identification of Mount Judy as the landing site of the Ark continued in Syriac and Armenian tradition but it was discarded for the biblical location, that of the highest mountain of the region, Mount Ararat. Jewish, Babylonian, Syriac, and Islamic traditions identify Mount Judy as the peak near the modern town of Sisra in southeastern Turkey at the headwaters of the Tigris, near the modern Syrian-Turkish border. Arab historian al-Musudi, who lived in the 10th century AD, reported that the spot where the Ark came to rest could be seen in his time. He stated that the mountain was located at 80 parasangs from the Tigris. But there is much variation on how far a single parasang was, so the distance he mentioned isn't that helpful. Al-Masudi also said that the Ark began its voyage at Kafu in central Iraq, sailed to Mecca, where it circled the Kaaba before finally traveling to Judy. The Kaaba is a black-draped, cube-shaped building in Mecca that is considered Islam's most sacred site. Al-Masudi never explained how Noah would have known where to circle considering the kebab would have been under a vast amount of water. He also asserted that Noah built a mosque at the landing site of the ark, a mosque that he claimed was still visible at the end of the first millennium AD. 
English researcher George Sell, in his translation of the Quran published in 1734, noted that Mount Judy is supposed to be one of those mountains that divide Armenia on the south from Mesopotamia and that part of Syria which is inhabited by the Kurds. He also mentioned that there was once a Christian monastery on the mountain, but that this was destroyed by lightning in the year 776 AD. It appears that this monastery is different from the one on the slope of Mount Ararat. There's plenty more information available online concerning these mountains, but it's time to move on to the other flood stories. Like I mentioned last week, the fact that a similar story can be found from multiple sources does not indicate that the story is false, but instead lends credibility to the story. When a story comes from many sources, some of which are independent, then we begin to believe it. And we continue to believe that it did happen, even when the stories are all different in some or many aspects. As a Christian, I believe the flood story is presented in the Bible, but that doesn't preclude me from exploring similar stories from other cultures. First there is Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh was the central character in the Akkadian poem known as the Epic of Gilgamesh. This poem is considered by many to be the first great work of literature. It is believed to have been written between 2800 to 2500 BC. Among many other things, it contains a flood story. In the poem, Gilgamesh is part human, part god, who travels to meet the sage, and I'm going to totally mess the pronunciation of this up, but the sage's name was Utena Fishtim. And when he finds Utena Fishtim, he poses the questions that he has traveled so far and suffered so much to ask. These questions were, How did Utena Fishtim, a mortal man, become a god? How has he eluded death? And can Gilgamesh ever hope to do the same? Utena Fishtim, the survivor of the flood that almost wiped out mankind, tells his story. Once upon a time, he says, he was the king of Shuprapat, a beautiful, prosperous city on the banks of the Euphrates. Then the gods met in secret council. Anu, the god of the firmament, or land. Ninurta, the god of war and wells. Enlil, the god of earth, wind, and air. Enugi, the god of irrigation. And Ea, the cleverest of the gods, the god of wisdom and crafts. Enlil ordered a flood to destroy humankind. Ea had been sworn to secrecy, but he cleverly betrayed the gods' plans to Utenafism. Speaking to the walls of his house, he described the plans, while Utenafism heard everything on the other side of the walls. Ea warned him that the gods would be sending a terrible flood. He told him to build a boat of immense dimensions, Ten dozen cubits in height, approximately 180 feet, with six decks and one acre of floor space, and to load it up with the seeds of each living thing and with his family and possessions. When he asked what he would tell the people of Shurapapak, who would have to help him build this boat, Ea suggested an artful lie. Tell them, he said, that you are leaving the city because Enlil hates you. Tell them that when you leave, the city will be showered with good fortune that all manner of bread and wheat will rain down upon it, and that they will have more fish to eat than they can even imagine. So Utenapism butchered bulls and sheep for the workers and gave them rivers of beer and wine to drink. It was like a festival. In seven days, the boat was ready. With great difficulty, they launched it into the Euphrates. After the man he had employed as his caulker had sealed them inside, Utenapism gave him his house along with everything in it. When the storm came, the gods clambered up as high as they could go and cringed in terror. 
Ishtar, a goddess, wept to see her children being destroyed. Eventually, the boat ran aground on a mountain peak. After seven days, Eupenitism released a dove. When it couldn't find a dry place to land, it returned to the boat. He then released a swallow, and it's unclear if that was a European swallow, but it too returned. Then he released a raven, and it never came back. Nevermore. Upon reaching shore, Eupenitism prepared a sacrifice. The gods of heaven were famished and gathered around the altar. Ishtar came down wearing a necklace of lapis, a deep blue semi-precious stone, made into beads shaped like flies. She said she would forget neither her necklace nor this calamity, nor would she forgive Enlil, since the flood was his idea and he never discussed it with the other gods. When Enlil arrived to partake of the sacrifice, he saw the boat and lost his temper. He demanded to know how anyone escaped the flood, since he intended it to destroy everyone. After Ninurata named the culprit, Ea himself spoke up. He chastised Enlil for creating the flood, and said if he wanted to punish someone, he should have made the punishment fit the crime. Not everyone deserved to die. He said that plagues, wolves, and famine could be used to kill some people instead of all the people at once. Since he survived the flood, the gods granted unipotism and his wife immortality. Next there is the Sumerian flood story. It was recorded on a fragmentary tablet excavated at Nippur, a city in present-day Iraq. It was written in the Sumerian language and dated to around 1600 BC. After a missing section in the tablet, we learn that the gods have decided not to save mankind from an impending flood. Zerutura, the king and priest, learns of this. The next part of the story is missing from the clay tablet. When the tablet resumes, it is describing the flood. A terrible storm rocks the huge boat for seven days and seven nights. Then Uta, the sun god, appears and Zirutsura creates an opening in the boat. He sacrifices oxen and sheep. After another break in the tablet, the text continues. The flood is apparently over, the animals disembark, and Zirutsura bows before An, the sky god, and Enlil, the chief of the gods, who give him eternal life and take him to dwell in Dilmum for preserving the animals and the seed of mankind. The remainder of the poem is lost. Dilmum was a region in eastern Arabia, Obviously, there were similarities between the Akkadian and Sumerian stories. The Babylonian flood story is believed to have been written after the Genesis story and likely drew from the Hebrew version in its construction. In this tale, the flood is caused by the great storm god Enlil to punish mankind. In a city called Sheparapak on the river Euphrates, there lived a man called Utanapishtim. He was a favorite of Ea, the god of wisdom, and was warned by the god. Utanapishtim built himself a great boat, 120 cubits high, and the same width. He took inside it his family, many craftsmen, and a great stock of food. For six days and six nights it rained. The sun was blocked out. Even the gods were frightened, and all the men except Utanapishtim were destroyed. The gods were distraught at man's destruction. The boat came to rest on Mount Nishtar. On the seventh day of their resting on the mountain, he sent out a dove which found no place to land, and returned. And then he sent out a raven, which did not return, so he knew he was safe. When he finally came out of his boat, he made a sacrifice to the gods. The goddess Ishtar came down and created a rainbow, her necklace. When Enlil discovered that Upanapishtism had escaped him, he was furious and would have killed him. Ea persuaded Enlil that the complete destruction of mankind was wrong. He said that only men who had done wrong should be killed, and not all mankind. 
Enlil was persuaded, and he turned Uta Napatism into a god so that no man had escaped him. You can see how the Babylonian flood story was also influenced by the Akkadian and Sumerian stories. Several African cultures have an oral tradition of a flood story, and including the Kaiwa, Matubi, Maasai, Mandan, and Yoruba peoples. The Maasai people of modern-day Kenya and Tanzania had a story that was very similar to the Genesis narrative. A long time ago, the rivers began to flood. Then God told two people to get into a ship. He told them to take lots of seed and to take lots of animals. The water of the flood eventually covered the mountains. Finally, the flood stopped. Then the man, wanting to know if the water had dried up, let a dove loose. The dove returned. Later, he let loose a hawk, which did not return. Then the people left the boat and took the animals and the seeds with them. The indigenous inhabitants of the Adaman Islands in the Indian Ocean had a concise flood story. The interesting thing about these people is that they had very little contact with the outside world prior to the 18th century. In fact, there is one tribe, the Sentinelese, who remain isolated to this day. From the tribes that have had contact with the outside world comes this story. Pugala, the creator god in their religion, sent a devastating flood to punish people who have forgotten his commands. Only four people survived this flood, two men and two women. The Mayans of Central America had a flood story with little resemblance to the biblical account. Maya mythology was recorded in the Popola Vua, their book on ancient mythology. In it, their creator gods attempted to form creatures who would worship them. It took three iterations before they were successful in creating a race of humans that would pay the proper homage. The two previous creations were destroyed. The third race of humans, who were carved from wood, were eventually destroyed by a flood, mauled by wild animals, and smashed by their own tools and utensils. Maya flood myths hold that the only survivors of the flood were the four Bacabs, who took their places as upholders of the four corners of the sky. In other Central American myths, a variety of reasons are given for the occurrence of a great flood. Either the world was simply very old and needed to be renewed, the humans had neglected their duty to worship the gods, or they were punished for a transgression such as cannibalism. In these, the flood was one of but several destructions of the creation, usually the first of three or four such cataclysmic events. The Aztecs, however, considered the flood to be the fourth of the cataclysmic events. A large number of Mesoamerican flood myths, especially that of the Aztecs, state that there were no survivors of the flood and creation had to start from scratch. But there are also accounts that report that modern humans are descended from a small number of survivors. Interestingly, in some accounts, the survivors disobey the gods by lighting a fire and consequently are turned into animals. The Scandinavian flood story was short and to the point. Odin, Vili, and Ve fought and slew the great ice giant Ymir, and icy waters from his wounds drowned most of the Rime giants. The giant Bergelamir escaped with his wife and children on a boat made from a hollowed-out tree trunk. From them arose a race of frost ogres. No kidding. So Jack Frost, they're your ancestors. Ymir's body became the world we live on. His blood became the oceans. The Celts of the British Isles had a gruesome tale, but it still had a couple of similarities with the biblical flood story. Heaven and earth were great giants, and heaven lay upon the earth so that their children were crowded between them, and the children and their mother were unhappy in the darkness. The boldest of the sons led his brothers in cutting up heaven into many pieces. From his skull they made the earth, 
His spilling blood caused a great flood which killed all humans except a single pair who were saved in a ship made by a helpful titan. The waters settled in the hollows to become the oceans. The son who led the mutilation of heaven was a titan who became their king, but the titans and gods hated each other, and the king titan was driven from his throne by his son, who was born a god. That titan went to the land of the departed. The titan who built the ship, whom some consider to be the same as the king titan, went there also. The Welsh have a similar story. The lake of Lyon burst, flooding all lands. Dwyfan and Dwyfatch escaped in a mastless ship with pairs of every sort of living creature. They landed in what is now Britain and repopulated the world. The Lithuanian flood story is a bit more verbose, but follows a similar theme. From his heavenly window, the supreme god Pramzemus saw nothing but war and injustice among mankind. He sent two giants, Wandu and Weejus, who represented the water and the wind, to destroy the earth. After twenty days and twenty nights, little was left. Prazemus looked to see the progress. He happened to be eating nuts at the time, and he threw down the shells. One happened to land on the peak of the tallest mountain where some people and animals had sought refuge. Everybody climbed in and survived the flood by floating in the nutshell. God's wrath abated and he ordered the wind and water to subside. The people dispersed, except for one elderly couple who stayed where they landed. To comfort them, God sent the rainbow and advised them to jump over the bones of the earth nine times. They did so, and up sprang nine other couples, from which the nine Lithuanian tribes descended. The people of Hawaii had an extremely similar flood story. Nu was of the thirteenth generation from the first man. The gods commanded Nu to build an ark and carry on it his wife, three sons, and males and females of all breathing things. Waters came and covered the earth. They subsided to leave the ark on a mountain overlooking a beautiful valley. The gods entered the ark and told Nu to go forth with all the life it carried. In gratitude for his deliverance, Nu offered a sacrifice of pig, coconuts, and awa to the moon, which he thought was the god Cain. Cain descended on a rainbow to admonish Nu for his mistake, but left the rainbow as a perpetual sign of his forgiveness. For clarification, Awa is a native Hawaiian crop. The Shatu Native American tribe from the Northwest Territories of Canada had an interesting flood story. It's even more interesting when you realize that there was little liquid water in their permafrosted land. The wise man, foreseeing the possibility of a flood, built a great raft, joining the logs with ropes made from roots. He told other people, but they laughed at him and said they climbed trees in the event of a flood. Then came a great flood, with water gushing from all sides, rising higher than the trees and drowning all the people. But the wise man and his family escaped on his raft. As he floated, he gathered pairs of all animals and birds he met. The earth disappeared under the waters, and for a long time no one thought to look for it. Then the muskrat dove into the water looking for the bottom, but he couldn't find it. He dove a second time, and he smelled the earth, but he didn't reach it. Next the beaver dove. He reappeared unconscious, but holding a little mud. The wise man placed the mud on the water and breathed on it, making it grow. He continued breathing on it, making it larger and larger. He put a fox on the island, but it ran around the island in just a day. Six times the fox ran around the island. By the seventh time, the land was as large as it was before the flood, and the animals disembarked, followed by the wise man with his wife and his son. They repopulated the land. 
but the floodwaters were still too high, and to lower them, a heron, the large wading bird, swallowed all of the water. Now there was too little water. A plover, a small wading bird, pretending sympathy at the heron's swollen stomach, passed his hand over it, but suddenly scratched it. The waters flowed out into the rivers and the lakes. The Cherokee, a Native American tribe who lived in what is present-day Tennessee, Georgia, and the Carolinas, had an interesting story. Day after day, a dog stood at the riverbank and howled piously. Rebuked by his master, the dog said a flood was coming, and he must build and provision a boat. Furthermore, the dog said, he must throw him, the dog, into the water. For a sign that he spoke the truth, the dog showed the back of his neck, which was raw and bare with flesh and bones showing. The man followed the directions, and he and his family survived. From them, the present population is descended. It was never explained what happened to the anthropomorphized dog. The Incas in Peru, South America had two interesting stories. Pictorial records of ancient Incan rulers show that a flood rose above the highest mountains. All created things perished, except for a man and woman who floated in a box. When the flood subsided, the floating box was driven by the wind to Tiahuanaca, about 200 miles from Cusco, a modern city in the mountainous region of southeastern Peru. There, the Creator told them to dwell. The Creator molded new people from clay at Tiahuanaca. On each figure, the Creator painted their clothes and hairstyle, and He gave each nation distinctive language, songs, and seeds to plant. When he had brought them to life, he ordered them into the earth to travel underground and emerge from caves, springs, tree trucks, and the like. When they emerged, they were in their new homes. He then created the sun, moon, and stars. Another Incan myth goes like this. The creator god Viracocha made the earth and the sky, and he created stone giants to live in it. After a while, the stone giants became lazy and quarrelsome, as stone giants often do and Viracocha decided to destroy them. He turned them back to stone, and these stone statues still exist at several places. He destroyed the rest with a great flood. When the flood subsided, it left a few lakes, and it also left seashells at elevations of 12,000 feet, or 3,600 meters. Viracocha saved two stone giants from the flood, and with their help, he created people his own size. He reached down into a lake and drew out the sun and moon to provide light, so he could admire his new creation. In those days, the moon was even brighter than the sun, but the sun grew jealous and threw ashes into the moon's face. In the Manu and Matsa culture of present-day India, the story first appears in the Shapatha Brahmana, written sometime between 700 and 300 BC, and is further detailed in the Matsa Purana, written between 250 and 500 AD. Matsa, who is the incarnation of the Hindu lord Vishnu as a fish, forewarns Manu, who is the ancestor of mankind, about an impending catastrophic flood. Matsa orders Manu to collect all the grains of the world in a boat. In some forms of the story, all living creatures are also to be preserved in the boat. When the flood destroys the world, Manu survives by boarding the ark, which Matsa the fish pulls to safety. To me, this is the most interesting of the non-Judeo-Christian stories, because it was written at a time when there could have been little contact with the people who were writing a similar story. In my mind, this is the most consistent, independent attestation of a cataclysmic flood story survived by a man who knew well enough in advance to build a large ark. Many of the critics of these stories propose that most, if not all of the stories, have been influenced by the Judeo-Christian narrative. 
They argue that this is especially true in those societies without a written language that relied solely on oral tradition. In that regard, we may never know if their proposition is true, and it certainly does cause one to think. But, as we've seen, the prevalence of a very similar story across completely disconnected continents, and in many cases, from written sources, is a great curiosity. And while there may be many explanations for that, in my mind, there's only one. So that's the episode for this week. Join me next week when I'll babble about a tower in Mesopotamia. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at thechurchestheworld.com. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at thechurchestheworld.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase, The Church is the World, as four separate words. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.